Hello and welcome to Supervision Smorgasbord, a podcast full of tips, tricks, and interviews with experts to help you enjoy being a supervisor. Here's your host, Dr. Tara Sanderson. Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. We are going to be talking with Kara Crossweight Brindle. Kara is an LPC and an approved clinical supervisor and owner of a group practice in Denver, Colorado. She is passionate about giving people aha moments that create goosebumps and catalyze powerful action. She began her career in community mental health as a, and managed a team of 15 green clinicians who served at-risk youth and families. Kara has provided quality individual supervision since 2014 and currently enjoys providing supervision of supervision to support colleagues in developing their leadership style. Kara is the co-founder and co-author of the Empowerment Model of Clinical Supervision, which launched in 2019. She's developed a supervision empowerment academy for mental health leaders and provides clinical supervision training opportunities and consultation within the mental health field. But that is not all that you do, Kara, because I also Googled you <laughs> and found out that you have another book that's out. I think it's called Perfection Or, and mm-hmm. that you do financial counseling and that you are a huge advocate for training people to um, to understand suicide awareness as well as um, do a suicide support um, for for counselors as well as it look like lay people. So you are a a wonder in our clinical world, and I'm so glad to have you uh, on our podcast today. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Happy to be here. So I always start with my uh, guests asking a random question. So today's random question for you is what are your biggest time wasters? And when I think time wasters, I don't just mean ones that stop you from being productive. I also mean, what are the ones that stop you from doing your self-care? Ooh, such a good question. And I feel like such a human question Mm -hmm. (laughs) if we're all guilty of that. Um, Probably my time wasters are still like scrolling through social media, whether it's like my friend's Facebook group or like fellow therapists. Um, or Instagram. I mean, I think those are kind of the two that are still the culprit for me. I'm sure listeners are like, where does she fit that in with everything you just shared? But (laughs) those still tend to show up in the weird hours where I'm like, huh, I have nothing I have to do or it's not Mm -hmm. urgent right now. It is amazing to me how quickly my thumb finds its way to my Instagram app or my Facebook app. Like I had to start hiding them in other places or take them off of the main menus where I had to like search for them a little bit because they were getting to the place where instead of clicking to get my email or clicking to like look at my calendar, like I would open up Facebook and I wouldn't even realize that my thumb was doing that. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I've had to do a little, little bit of modification on my phone to help me curb that type waster a little bit but I think that it's so true that those get in the way of not only doing stuff but taking care of ourselves because we could be doing other things during that time resting meditating going for a walk all sorts of things um and that would take care of ourselves but sometimes that we just yeah we just keep scrolling (laughs) well I just think it keeps us from being present right like I love your strategy of making that a little less accessible uh, because it is it's kind of like a knee-jerk zone out escapism similar to like binge watching a show or something mm-hmm. like that and um, although I don't do that I know many people can relate to that experience of like oh I just want to zone out at the end of the day absolutely so for me I guess it's still unfortunately social media <laughs> <laughs> yep absolutely 
Well, today we were going to talk about critical incidents and supervision. And I think that this is a wildly important topic because I think that a lot of the supervisors I talk to um, know some of the biggies that are critical incidents, but they haven't really established um, a, a training component for their team on how to navigate them or haven't really figured out kind of a system for what they do with them. So I kind of just want to go the gamut of what defines a critical incident to you and what are some of the ways that you think um, are best for us to navigate those as supervisors, both back end like strategies for your practice, but also in in how we talk to our uh, supervisees. Yeah, absolutely. So I think even just defining what a critical incident is is so important because as a professor teaching the youngest generation of therapists, they have no idea what that means. <laughs> and so even just breaking it down to be like, well, here is like dozens of examples, but even like, how do we define it? Um, and so as I've done these trainings with other professionals, we started to define it as, you know, an imminent safety concern that requires action. And that's kind of the catch-all for any critical incident is that you require something of us as a professional and there's an imminent safety need that justifies that action. And so that could be suicidal thoughts to some degree. Obviously, we could have a whole conversation about suicide assessments. Mm. <laughs> um, that could be domestic violence. That could be substance use or, you know, a client being under the influence in a session. Um, it's just dozens of things we could think of that are critical incidents. And much to what you said, kind of the big ones we think of are like suicide and things like that. But like, there's other things that we want to be aware of to make sure that we're supporting our supervisees and they are supporting their clients. It is so interesting. I was thinking about um, some supervisees I've worked with in the past who have had, who have noticed their own um, kind of uh, tension around certain topics. I'm going to use... um, uh, self-harm as a as an example mm-hmm. but maybe uh, self-harm is very um, upsetting to them or that they that they don't hold that as um, as in, in the same way that necessarily I would where I've had a lot of exposure to that for um, in my other careers but um, I, I think about the difference between like there's non-suicidal self-injury right there's self-harm for mm-hmm. um, all sorts of different reasons and having a supervisee who 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 hears their client say like yes i am doing this self injury and and when does that become a critical incident versus a maybe a therapeutic incident yeah i think that's a valuable question because when i'm in my suicide assessment training arena i talk about how suicide is one of nine reasons that people self harm and that's coming from um, dr jack Klotz's work and so if suicide is one of nine reasons for self-harm, I think it's really important for us as clinicians to slow down and be curious and ask questions so we yes. don't assume that the self-harm is related to suicide because um, it's one of nine reasons, right? So yes. um, having people really look at intent is the first thing I would have them think about outside of being curious and asking questions. It's like, what was the intent of that behavior? When we self-harm, when we burn, when we scratch, when we cut, what is the intention behind that? And that can give us a lot of context on if it is truly a critical incident or not. Um, If they say it was a suicide attempt, well, then we kind of have the green light to go forward with the action steps of a critical incident. But if they say this was actually me dissociating and me trying to come back into my body, well, then from a therapeutic place, we can honor that while still helping them create other coping skills Mm -hmm. to do that effect, right? To be able to say, here's another way to come back into your body that doesn't cause uh, harm to your body. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking about the training that you just did recently through the telemental health uh, certificate program on the, on your empowerment model and thinking about a supervisor's responsibility to also be thinking about our supervisee in that moment. So we know that this is something that mm-hmm. is upsetting to them or that it's really hard for them to handle or that there's something in there that's kind of making a mess for them in this, that they're responding, you know, in a, in a way that's uh, maybe not typical for us as as therapists and trying to utilize our skills to help them understand where they're coming from so that they can address their own stuff in this um, in this issue, right? Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I think being able to say like, oh, you, sh- you show up human first. <laughs> so yeah. what was the reaction you had to your client disclosing that self-harm or disclosing something else that might be a critical incident? And the adrenaline and the emotions that come with that as clinicians. I mean, we're talking brain clinicians to season clinicians. We all yeah. have a reaction as a human. And so being able to hold space and that zero judgment component, to be like, come into supervision and talk to me about this. Like, what was that like for you to have a client disclose? Um, and holding that space so that they can be human, but also then find an effective way to be a clinician in that moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I, I feel like I've taken away from the empowerment model often is that there's this there's this line of of we are not their therapist, um, and we may be the ones who remind them that they need to work on this in therapy, right? Like, like helping them notice, <laughs> yeah. hey, this is an area for you. This is something that's really kind of happening in you, and let's figure out how we can make sure you contain and and do your job, but also like you need to make sure you're talking to your person about this so that you can do the work that's necessary. So this isn't something that's going to uh, be in the way of the work that you do for your yes. clients. I love how you put that hundred percent. Exactly. Like I know for our clients, more of our role is to hold up the mirror and show them, you know, the behaviors or the things that they're recreating in therapy. And this is like a smaller version of that so that we're not therapizing <clears throat> the supervisee, but still helping them have some clarity about how they show up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we're talking about critical incidents, do you have like any frameworks that um, that you train supervisors on for like what they need to do in their back end, like what they need to document about it or or um, how they need to like create some structure in their practice around supervising folks who have critical incidents with their clients? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of a two parter. The first part is even define critical incidents with a supervisee that's coming in. So as part of a contract or as part of the first initial meeting, you're really talking about like, what is a critical incident? How is it defined? What are some examples? Um, you know, I've encouraged supervisors to even put those as bullet points in their contract of like a critical incident is X, Y, Z. Um, so that the supervising knows, oh, that means I need to follow up with you. Or here's that next step of I need to make a phone call. Um, so I think normalizing that it's going to happen and then having it in a contract is one part of the equation for supervisors. And then that second part is what is the support or action step going to look like when the supervisor says, yep, I think this is one. <laughs> so yeah. maybe it's, are they making a phone call? Are they having another supervision meeting sooner than what's scheduled? Um, but more importantly, like what's the paper trail? And so one of the trainings that we've put together in this last year is all about critical incidents and that paper trail. So like, what is the documentation that's required? How do we empower the supervisee to start completing that? And then having the supervisor be a part of that for them. Um, so really it's a critical incident form is what I would say and capturing all the important relevant pieces of what happened and what steps should we take as professionals to help the client. 
Yeah, and I will tell you that that uh, that idea of having a, a form that the supervisee fills out to share with you to kind of walk through that process. The one that I have for my practice, I made into um, a really process form. So it's like step one, gather all of this information, put it here. Like step two, now you're going to make this phone call. Here's what you're going to talk to them about. Like step three, <laughs> like um, just really nice. trying to help people. Um, recognize that like it's not something that can just be um well i shouldn't say not can't be just filled out quickly but because you can obviously fill it out quickly but that Mm -hmm. it is something that you do need to be thinking about especially like when we're calling our our cps or our child protective services or um i know they're called different things in different states but really the the folks that we're having to report to if we're having to call the police on something or whatever there's a lot Mm -hmm. of details that those other people are going to ask us for and we we need to make sure we're prepared on our end with all of the things that we we can do but also there's some grounding i think that comes from like filling out this form and getting ready getting ready for it to process of like okay I have everything I need so that it's not as nerve-wracking especially for for green clinicians but honestly I feel like even seasoned clinicians who don't have to report very often every time they do they're like oh they get that little flutter in their chest of like gosh I gotta sit on the phone and share somebody's story with you know the Department of Human Services or Child Protection Services Mm -hmm. so these kind of forms help us to kind of feel a little more like, okay, we can handle this. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree of it being grounding because the adrenaline that shows up in those moments and then having to articulate yourself, but also have it be professional writing, right? So like, yes. it's not a, a journal prompt where you're just kind of like free association word dumping. I think what makes it so grounding is now, not only does the supervisor need to know what happened, but we need it captured in professional language for the client's file. And so I think that actually gives the clinician permission to slow down and be like, how would I say this? What would be least harmful to the client? Am I being, you know, non-judgmental? Am I being evidence-based? Like all the things that would go with professionalism that might not necessarily show up with that knee-jerk reaction of adrenaline that comes first. Yeah, yeah. I think too about the follow-up from these. So you've got uh, you've you've got your initial contract that says this is what you're going to do in a, a critical incident. A critical incident happens. You've got this paperwork that they fill out. What is your follow-up for once the once everything's kind of settled back down? What's your follow-up with that supervisee like? Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously a, a question of outcomes. So if it was like someone suicidal, they were hospitalized. The outcome is like when were they released? Are they coming back into care with you? Are they needing a higher level of care, et cetera, et cetera? So like there is a section of our critical incident form to be filled out secondarily, which is like what were the outcomes? So the first section is what happened and capturing that, especially knowing that most supervisors aren't in the room or maybe even in the building Mm -hmm. (laughs) with their clinicians sometimes. So it's really that nice paper trail. But then what was the outcome? Um, Were they referred to substance treatment if they came under the influence to therapy? Uh, did a mandated report have to be filed because a child had access to drug paraphernalia? Like so many different critical incidents that we have tracked in our book. And so I think having that, but then maybe on the more emotional side is maybe a couple weeks down the road, checking in with the supervisee, not as their therapist, but as their leader saying, how are you doing? How did that sit for you? Are you still feeling, you know, for lack of a better word, triggered by something that happened with your supervisee or with your client? I think specifically of... um, a clinician I worked with who had a client have a seizure mm. in the middle of their session, mm-hmm. um, which was very unexpected. Like they knew that they had a seizure disorder. It had been documented, but like 
knowing something and seeing it with your own eyes is very different. Absolutely. <laughs> and so for them, there was some acute stress response of they kept having flashbacks of what this person looked like collapsing on the floor and seizing um, and the noise that they made, just really sensory things that kept showing up for them. Yeah. And so I felt like it was my job as their supervisor to, one, hold space for that so they could articulate what was going on, but also gauge a couple weeks down the road, like, has that lessened like we'd hoped? Mm-hmm. If not, are we seeking additional support? Or do you need a referral? Like, what's going to help them so that that doesn't plague them for the rest of their career? I mean, obviously, it made an impact, but we don't want it to be a negative impact forever. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think about things that make my life easier in tracking all that information, because I don't know about you, but I have a, I have a client caseload. I have a supervision caseload. I have a business that I'm running. I've got external supervisees that I've got going on, right? Like I've got lots of things <laughs> in my little universe. So one of the things that has helped me a ton in, in keeping track of thinking to myself, like, I need to check in with them about this is inside of Google, I use the um, the reminders or the task list. So anytime a client mm-hmm. or a supervisee would have a moment like that, where, you know, where, where this thing happened, I, I kind of auto schedule that to pop back up in a week or two weeks or whatever on the day of their supervision. So that Google is sending me a reminder to say, hey, ask so and so about their intrusive thoughts around that client or ask so and so about, mm-hmm. you know, that critical incident with that client how are they doing or check in on whether or not the client's out from the hospital or whatever so that I don't have to have my brain (laughs) be the end all of these experiences I can have Google remind me on the days where it's really important um, to to do that work yeah and I think on the other side of that coin is like encouraging them to reach out and really feel safe enough to say as my supervisor, I want to give you an update or here's what's going on for me. You know, I think it also speaks to the importance of regular supervision so that we have eyes on them two weeks out, three weeks out, a month out, (laughs) that they're on our calendar. Uh, Similar to you, I love task lists. I mean, that's how I organize my brain as well. And I use simple practice, which is an electronic health Mm -hmm. record for client work. But I've also put my supervisees and consultees in there. So I can do a quick chart note of like, hey, I want to remember to ask them about this or I can put a reminder in there too that's encrypted, which is super helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is, uh, I think having my supervisees in simple practice has made the flow of my practice work so much easier for, for having to balance that element of I'm taking notes on my supervisees. I'm, I'm taking notes on what's going on with their clients and I want that information to be protected. So I'm doing it within that system mm-hmm. that keeps everything kind of protected to each individual person. Um, I, I don't know if you differentiate in your simple practice, but I, I put, um, an S in front of all of my supervisees names so that as I look at the calendar, if I see S's, that tells me that those are supervisees versus if they're just names, their clients or consultants, I put C in front of it. (laughs) Um, Just because there's sometimes where I've got it put on the like, um, I don't remember what the right word is, but like confidential mode or whatever, where you just see initials or Mm -hmm. whatever. And, and I like to be able to scan my calendar and be like, what do I have going on this week? Okay, four clients and six supervisees. And I can just kind of look at it at a glance and know what's happening. I love that. Yeah, I actually I work with a a lot of Medicaid population in my practice. And so I've actually put their Medicaid numbers after their last name. So that's how they're categorized in my practice. But I love the idea of S versus C. I also am the weirdo who uses a paper calendar. I love it. And so when I'm trying to prepare my day, 
I might open that and see like someone that says soup or consult versus nice. initials for private practice. Yeah. <laughs> but I love those ideas. I'm going to have to steal those from you. Nice. Well, go for it. <laughs> have at them for sure. For sure. What do you think are, are areas where supervisors kind of globally need more, um, need more support in critical in critical incidents? Powerful question. You know, I think because you and I have already talked today about how important it is to name that we're human first. We also have reactions to critical incidents and that might be like a cover your butt reaction or a how could you do that reaction or how could you not tell me uh, depending on your level of control freak. I'm a, I'm a huge control freak and I make fun of myself for that. But my supervisors know like you're not bothering me by telling me what's going on. So please tell me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I feel like the whole purpose of creating a critical incident training and why I've enjoyed it so much in this last year is that clinicians and supervisors want to know what they don't know. So like yeah. by looking at 47 different scenarios in our book and thus in the training, we don't go through all 47 in the training, we go through 10, which still feels like a lot. Uh, we start to see the reactions, you know, yeah. it creates a space for them to show up and be like, how would I respond to this? What's coming up for me? So it feels like they're preparing rather yeah. than, being, than being in like a reactionary place because they're like, oh, this could happen. I mean, every single one of those vignettes is inspired by true events. And yeah. so community mental health makes that really easy. It's never bo- never boring, never dull. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but having people sit in these trainings and recognize like, oh, that's how I'd show up or that would be my reaction or here are my thoughts and here's my emotion has been so powerful to watch people like have a space that feels safe enough to be like, wow, I'd be like panicked or mm-hmm. I would be outraged or I'd have lots of questions. And if they can do that here in the training, then they're more prepared and hopefully more grounded for when it could happen in real life with a supervisee. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my takeaway from that is to be thoughtful of the critical incidents that could happen, um, i.e. by your book. Um, <laughs> not that you said that, I'm saying that. Um, <laughs> to, well, thank you. <laughs> to, to educate yourself through the process of like, what are the things that could happen? Notice your own reactions through that process. Give yourself permission to be human and also learn what you don't know yet, right? Like be ever mm-hmm. learning in in the navigation of these critical incidents. And I think that that is important in, in, in the fact that you have, you know, 47 of these topics in your book, as well as just being thoughtful about the permutations that might happen in your practice. My practice is primarily teens and up, but I have a few couple of kiddos in there. Um, and every once in a while, I, I do recognize that like our paperwork or our system was really built for teens and up. And so when something comes up with a kiddo, I kind of have to look back at my system and go, huh, yeah, I didn't really think about the fact that, you know, I'd have a six-year-old in the practice and and what that was going to look like for, mm-hmm. you know, parent conversations or different elements of it that, that work different than when you're working with a teenager who has, you know, the ability to access therapy on their own or whatever. And we didn't need to really right. think about those other levels. And so keeping keeping that in mind of my own growth of what do I need to know? How can I ask questions? And then I think an added piece that I would put in there is make sure that you're having some sort of conversation and and supervision group experience with other supervisors so that you can hear Mm -hmm. about what other people are going through. You can be educating yourself and continuing to grow because being a supervisor, just like being a therapist, is kind of lonely if you don't have a group of people who are there supporting you and keeping you moving forward. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, that's exactly where my head went. Of like, I think that's been the most rewarding part of doing trainings with people in big groups is that they can share their own experience if they're comfortable. It's like, oh, yeah, I had that happen, and here's what I did, or here's what I learned. And so it just becomes, I mean, the content becomes that much more robust because people are sharing what they did in that situation, knowing that there's not one right way to do it. I mean, maybe with mandated reporting, there's like one right. one option, <laughs> right. but everything else, you know, like based on your agency or how your practice is set up or who you serve, you might have different protocols, mm-hmm. but to know that there are other people who showed up as human first, or, you know, you can take ideas away from them and be like, okay, I feel more prepared if that were to ever happen. I mean, that's such a rewarding part of this work is being able to, I guess, keep people on their toes, which is my personal joy of writing 47 vignettes. <laughs> But also just like see the wheels turning and be like, okay, I feel more confident. I feel more prepared. Uh, Whether that's suicide assessment, which is my other passion or supervision, you know, I just think there's so much that we can take from that and continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. We do um, a didactic training in my office and and once a month we do some sort of an ethical component. Um, And inside of those ethics components, I mix it up between vignettes that someone has written as well as looking at our own board's naughty list, right? Like the ones where they Mm. post these things happen to someone and this is what happened to them. and one of the <laughs> questions, I love it. <laughs> one of the questions I always ask um, in in when I'm meeting with supervisees or throughout the year as we keep going is like thinking about our own personal flaws. Where are the areas that you're going to where where it could be a slippery slope for you? Um, and I always admit, like mine's always going to be paperwork. At the end of the day, <laughs> if I'm going to get caught for some, doing something like wrong, it's going to be that I missed, you know, fully reading a document or that I missed signing mm-hmm. off on something or I missed a detail somewhere um, that I really should have caught or done uh, because I definitely I value paperwork a lot and I am not as detailed as I'd like to be as a human <laughs> on those areas so as yeah you know, when it comes to like making sure like an informed consent got signed I'm really good at making sure it went out but I'm not so great on the follow-up of did it get signed right so like I know that that's oh, my yeah. flaw area and that's probably if, if I ever get put on the naughty list it's going to be that one But using those ethics (laughs) trainings helps me to help them figure out their kind of blind spots. And when I think about critical incidents, I also think that's another area where like, what's an area that's going to be a blind spot for you in like how a client maybe doesn't tell you everything and you maybe accept Mm -hmm. it as as where it's at. Right. I'm thinking about especially when we went to telehealth, we had um, I had a lot of teens with self-injury or teens that um we're dealing with some eating disorder issues and in person I can always tell when it's a hot day in July and you're wearing a giant hoodie um, (laughs) that like something's (laughs) amiss here what's going on right right but when you're in your bedroom at home and all I see are your shoulders in your head I can't I can't tell if something's going on and it's really Mm -hmm. awkward to be like hey kids stand up I want to see what's going on with your body (laughs) like that's right sometimes I did and I have to when I've got kiddos that I need to look for those things but you know I I definitely recognize that not every therapist would look at their teen and say nope I need you to stand up and I need to like take a good look at you for a moment Uh, because they Mm -hmm. may just accept this moment and there's no like you know there's no ethical guideline or, or legal thing that is wrong with with doing that. But it is one of those risk areas. It could be a critical incident area that they may kind of slide on. Right. 
Right. Well, and I appreciate you sharing your vulnerability of like, here's where my, my uh, edge would be, or like, here's where maybe mm-hmm. I would have a struggle. And so many people would say, I tell this to my students all the time, like, I know you're not in this for the paperwork, it's because you want to help people. Um, and yet we still need to be good at that skill. Yep. And I was sitting here thinking about what would, what would be my, uh, I don't want to say flaw, but like my area of growth. That's a nice way to put it, area of growth. Um, and I think it's, something else your listeners can relate to, which is like black and white thinking, right? As a former workaholic, as a former perfectionist, if I come out of school or a program saying, this is how you do it, and this is the only way you do it, that doesn't apply to critical incidents. And that's probably why people have sought out this training, because they're like, I need to know all of the possible responses to the incident, Um, because it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray. And so I personally, I found myself stuck in that black and white thinking where it's like, this is the way you do it. And then maybe there's a missed opportunity to do it differently or yeah. in a way that would help the supervisee or client better. Um, and so I was just sitting here reflecting, like, yep, that's probably my edge. <laughs> so yeah. I need to continue to monitor that and not say, like, this is the only way you do it, which is why I appreciate how we wrote the vignettes. It's, like, somewhat vague so people could apply them to their own location, right? Mm-hmm. So in-home versus telehealth versus office versus agency and still hopefully come up with an empowered response that helps everybody, um, which is our goal of the whole empowerment model. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that by helping ourselves recognize our humanity, we can find ways to grow in all of those areas. <laughs> and I think that by, by, by being honest with our supervisees that we have those areas to grow, um, it gives them permission to have them too, right? They don't know everything yet mm-hmm. either. And even things that are as, as good as sometimes being very like rigid on, we always call DHS when <laughs> dot, 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 or whatever. Um, like there are some right. good parts to being rigid. And there are some challenges because then, you know, you're not giving uh, an opportunity for some of the nuances of this particular case, in, which may need some different supports or a different timeline or a different all sorts of pieces. So I love I love the idea of giving people the, the opportunity to recognize their challenges and figure out ways that they can navigate them. And, and I think especially in thinking about your book, um, having the opportunity to take a look at these kind of vague cases and say, what would this look like in my space? And where would my edge be? Where would I see myself like not hitting all of the right markers? And where would I see myself, you know, doing doing well or being able to like handle this, whether that's emotionally or supervisorily or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yes, nicely said. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we are getting ready to wrap up. Why don't you tell us about a couple of things that you have going on and how people can find you? Oh, gosh. Well, as you named in the introduction, I wear lots of hats, and I prefer that, even though that probably was the byproduct of former workaholism. Now it keeps me from burning out. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I like to yeah. say. Um, so right now I'm still enjoying, you know, teaching the youngest generation of therapists at my alum, University of Denver, which is a joy. That's where I'm sitting today for the listeners who can hear any of the background. I apologize. Um, what else am I doing? Financial therapy is a, is a big question mark in our community of people not knowing what that is. And the long and short of it is it's helping people heal their relationship with money. So if there's shame or anxiety or dread or scarcity, um, which is pretty common in the mental health world, yeah. I would say three quarters of my caseload are fellow therapists who are working on themselves and whether it's being a business owner or being a private practice, um, we all have our stuff. Yeah. And so it's been a wonderful shift through the pandemic to work with fellow clinicians in that capacity, in addition to consults and supervision. Um, so yeah, I think most people can find me, I guess, 
weirdly on Instagram as we're talking about social media. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but also I'm just putting out my sixth book with a publisher, my first book with a publisher um, in July. So and on when this comes out, I would love people to learn more about mother-daughter estrangement and helping their adult women daughters heal from that wow. estrangement, which is a, a pain point that's not really been addressed. There's lots of books out there for the parents, not as many out there for the adult daughter. So I'm really excited to see how the community responds to that. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, love, lots of passion projects. Um, most likely you can find almost all of them on my website because I put everything on there just to organize it. Uh, which is crossweightcounselingllc.com. Perfect. We will get that link up there for everyone to find out about all the things that you have going on. Um, I am super excited that we were able to share some of these tips around um, critical incidents and supervision and so grateful that you uh, joined me during your super busy day. Um, And I (laughs) hope that everybody out there grabbed something too. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much. What a fantastic episode. Being here with Kara was just phenomenal to talk about risk, to talk about uh, the uh, empowerment model, and to really think about who we are as supervisors. So two takeaways for today. One, I really want us to think about challenging the inequality in the supervision space. It's vital that we look about uh, look at our power dynamics and the systems that we have set up for our supervision. So your challenge today is to take five minutes and write down all of the different systems that you use in supervision practice. What are the ones that you're performing as a top-down experience? What are the ones that you're coming to the table as a collaborator? And what are the ones that you are spending time learning from your supervisee and developing in a new way, okay? The second takeaway for today is to think about your systems. I want you to think about and map out the process of bringing on a supervisee and all the way through them leaving your practice. What are the first things that come to mind in your training and in those components? What are the most important aspects? And then put it away and tomorrow or whenever, take it back out and look over it and see what things you missed. This can help you identify the the places where you've got some holes in your training or ways that you could do things better um, in, in your supervisee practice. Um, I hope that's uh, been a good tasty morsel today and that you are excited about hearing about our next uh, couple of guests and, and supervisees. If you've got questions, feel free to shoot me a message. I'm happy to take questions. Uh, if you'd like to join the show, you can shoot feel free to uh, fill out our form on the website and I would love to get to know you. Have an amazing day. This has been Supervision Smorgasbord with Dr. Tara Sanderson. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find us at drterrasanderson.com backslash podcast and on all social media at Dr. Tara Sanderson. Thank you and we will see you next time.